You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. This is our fourth episode of Vernacular Podcast, and today we are going to sit down and talk to Muriel. Muriel, not to be confused with the elven queen from the J.R.R. Tolkien series. That's a different Muriel, just just so we're clear. (laughs) Right. This Muriel is a doctoral student studying constitutional law and a full-time stay-at-home mom to an adorable baby boy, Gregory, and she's married to a medical resident who is just about to start his third year. So a very busy person, Yes. but she's agreed to carve out some time from her day to talk to us, so we're looking forward to that. Yeah, and we'll be talking in the lifestyle segment today about date night ideas for busy couples, so very appropriate. And then in the current events section, we will be talking about the death penalty, given that a Boston jury just this past week sentenced the Boston Marathon bomber to death for his role in the bombing. And after all that, we'll talk to her about her life. But now it's time, before we do all of that, for your tip of the week. We know you've been waiting for that. The hashtag tip of the week. Now, so Sally and I were thinking uh, just earlier, or maybe it was yesterday, about what we were going to do for our tip of the week on this segment. And then Sally was listening to another podcast and heard a really good tip. Yes. And I have to put out a little plug for this podcast, even though I have no connection to it whatsoever, but it has just captured my attention the past week or so. It's Startup by Alex Bloomberg, who used to work for This American Life. And we encourage you to listen to this only if it won't affect your current podcast listening habits, <laughs> like vernacular podcasts. Right, right. We don't want you to, to, to stop listening to us to listen to Startup. But if you do listen to Startup, in the second season of Startup, they're talking about a dating company. And they talk about bad online dates. And one example of a bad date is related to the use of Hinge. Now, if you'll recall, last week when we talked to Julia, Hinge was one of the dating apps that came up in our conversation, and Julia has recently tried out Hinge and was telling us that it seemed like a pretty good app so far because, if I recall, it it gives you recommendations for matches based on your current social media network, basically. Right, right. So it seems a little bit safer. So we left the conversation with Julia thinking, oh, maybe Hinge is a step in the right direction. Right, right. But then I heard about this story about someone who went out on a date with someone via Hinge. And the person said, the guy said that he was on call because his sister was going to be going into labor any day now. And then she found out through Instagram that the guy was actually waiting for his live-in girlfriend to go into labor with their baby. So we just want to say, (laughs) yeah. So Hinge is not apparently the answer for everything. Yes, or at least that you should use it with caution. There are probably success stories for Hinge out there, but there are obviously failure stories as well. Yeah, so thanks to Startup for cueing us into that little issue with with Hinge. And So um, if you use Hinge to try to find a match and they start talking about how their sister's going into labor, just be careful. Yeah, be careful. So that's our hashtag tip of the week. There it is, tip of the week. Be careful with dating apps. And listen to Startup. All right, next coming up, we're going to talk to Muriel about the death penalty. Stick around. All right, well, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are in the studio with Muriel, or more more, uh, accurately, Muriel is Skyping in with us. Hi, guys. If you hear that noise behind Muriel, Muriel, is that your son? 
That is Gregory. He's six months old and he's very chatty. So, so Gregory's joined us for this conversation as well. Our first duo. Our first duo. <laughs> so he might have some inputs along the way. Uh, but the first thing we'll talk about in our current events section is uh, Jokar Tsarnaev and the fact that he was uh, handed the death penalty by a Boston jury earlier this week. So uh, Jokar Tsarnaev was being tried in a federal case. And the fact that the jury gave him the death penalty is actually only the fourth time in uh, or fourth time since 1988, which is when the death penalty was reinstituted in federal trials, uh, that this has actually happened. So one of wow. those other times was Timothy McVeigh. Uh, and then there were two others. One was, I think, a, a murderous drug dealer and the other had, uh, had killed a female soldier. Hmm. But basically, this has been reserved for the worst of the worst um, since 1988. We haven't seen it happen very much, uh, but here it is. So federal trial, Jokar Tsarnaev handed the death penalty. So I thought we could talk about that a little bit. And there are really two questions here. The one, maybe we can't answer that very, that well, and that is, did Tsarnaev deserve the death penalty in this instance? And I only say we might not be able to answer it that well because we weren't on the jury. So we don't have access to all of the information that the jury did. But then maybe we can answer it well if we can answer the second question more definitively, and that is, is the death penalty ever deserved? So um, that's obviously a philosophical question, but what do we think about the death penalty? I thought we could tease that out a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Well, I find this whole situation really interesting, partly, Zach, as you mentioned, because it is so rare, um, at least in federal cases, but also because it's increasingly rare at the state level as well. I mean, the, the trend in states is to move away from imposing the death penalty. Um, and from a political perspective, which is the, the academic perspective that I come at these things from, I find that really interesting, not necessarily persuasive from a constitutional perspective, which is a question that a lot of people will raise, but it is interesting from sort of a societal perspective that it seems to be something as a society that Americans are less and less convinced, I guess, is the right thing to do. Um, so that's, it definitely raises the question. Yeah, it is alarming to think about how much historically the death penalty has been exacted on criminals and then how that's tapered off in re in recent years. I don't know the statistics exactly, but I recently heard a debate between uh, two parties for and against abolishing the death penalty. And one of the arguments for the, the team that was arguing against abolishing the death penalty was that this has happened for so long. Uh, and actually, I also read a, an argument from uh, Justice Scalia who was talking about why he thinks the death penalty is in accordance with the Constitution. And one of his arguments was that this has actually happened. And so at the time of the, the founders, the time the framers were building the Constitution, the death penalty was carried out routinely. And it wasn't for just the worst of the worst. And he, actually, he said that it was hard to conceive that the founders really could think of uh, someone like Timothy McVeigh, one individual carrying out these atrocities on such a mass scale because it didn't happen back then. There weren't explosive devices, for example, to do that. Sure. And I actually think from a constitutional perspective, it's fairly clear. I mean, Justice Scalia has a very, um, I would say he's on one end of the spectrum in terms of interpreting the Constitution more uh with respect to how it would have been understood when it was instituted. And then there's at the other end of the spectrum, this very, you know, a living or evolving constitution mindset. I don't think there's really a question about whether the death penalty is constitutional, at least in cases like the Boston Marathon bombing case, um, which sort of doesn't have any of the constitutional difficulties of things like arbitrary application or um, 
concerns about is Gregory, music, is Gregory disagreeing <laughs> with you there? Or? <laughs> he's he's upset that he fell over. Oh. Uh, he thinks that's a cruel and unusual. Gosh, I hate it when that happens. I hate <laughs> it when I fall over. But um, but uh, but I actually think that the the real question is the moral question, right? The question not so much whether the Constitution permits it, because I don't think that's actually in a case like this really really in question. I think the question really is more. Is it something that we should do, even if the Constitution allows us to do it? It doesn't necessarily mean it's something that we should do. And the more that I think about it and read about it, I just become convinced that it's not something that we should do. I don't think that it accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish, and I think that there are serious problems with it that really aren't surmountable. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be anxious to hear more of your thoughts on that, and I think there, I think there are really two sides of this conversation too. One is what do we think of it from a moral standpoint? The other is what do we think of it from a public policy standpoint? Because I suppose you could even reach the conclusion that there's nothing wrong with the death penalty from a moral standpoint, but you can make a public policy argument about abolishing it, perhaps because it's too, it's too hard to carry out effectively and accurately, perhaps because it's too expensive to do, um, so I think there are two sides of, of that coin as well. Sure, absolutely. And I think I agree with you that if, if you could make the argument that it was morally acceptable um, in some cases or in all cases, and that is debatable as well, then you could still make a policy argument against it. I think the opposite side of that coin is that you can't argue that it's good public policy if it's you know, arguable or I think demonstrable that there are big moral problems with it. And I think the the one problem that hits at the crux of morality and policy is the fact that we're wrong sometimes, right? So the the whole idea behind the death penalty is that some people do things so terrible that they, um, you know, that they deserve to die. They deserve to be executed and returned and that there's no other punishment that we can inflict that will get to the heart of the justice of this issue, right? But we're wrong sometimes, and, and that's demonstrated. It's historically been proven that people on death row, you know, through DNA evidence, sometimes years later, have been demonstrated to be innocent, and how many people were executed before things like the Innocence Project came about and started looking into it and or just before the time when we had DNA evidence to look into such things. Um, yeah. So I guess that just, so two things, that weighs heavily. Yeah. Two things that I would, um, come back with and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but the first would be, uh, do you think that the process, the way it plays out now, that is the conviction, the, uh, assigning of the death penalty, and then up to 15 or 20 years of appeals, um, mitigates the risk of an inaccurate verdict uh, and thereby maybe eliminates or at least greatly reduces the policy problem of being wrong in our verdict. Um, and then the second being, from a theoretical standpoint, if we could have absolute certainty that someone had done this crime, would we be able to justify killing them for it? So, you know, maybe, maybe an instance where a person doesn't take uh, an insanity defense and openly confesses that, yes, he's the one who murdered these 400 people, et cetera. I mean, come up with a hypothetical, but but if we could have absolute certainty, then then what does that imply for the ethical argument? Sure, absolutely. So, so your first question, 
whether or not the, you know, the justice system in the United States mitigates the problem. I mean, I, th I think it, it surely does, it, you know, compared to a country that administers the death penalty swiftly and without due process. Um, but I think then so sort of, yes, I think there are cases and, you know, more often than not when the person receiving the death penalty is in fact guilty, right? So take, take that to your second question and, and posit something really, truly terrible. And I think it is important in discussing this to remember that there are people who commit terrible crimes. You know, we, can, we can't sort of bandy it about lightly as if the victims of these atrocious, you know, murders and torture and terrorist attacks and things like that aren't really victims. I think that's really important to remember um, and can't be taken lightly. I guess the question that always comes to my mind is what are you accomplishing when you execute someone um you know and there are lots of purposes of punishment that you talk about in political theory you know reasons why governments uh execute punishments upon people and by execute i mean not necessarily execution but all different kinds of punishments and right um one of the, you know, one of the purposes of punishment, and historically this was one of the reasons for the death penalty, is incapacitation, right? So how do you make sure that someone who has done something really terrible doesn't do it again? Um, and I think there have been points in history at which executing them was the only way to be sure that they wouldn't do it again. But I don't think that's the case in the United States in 2015. I don't think that anyone can make the argument that someone really terrible who has done something really terrible um, like a terrorist attack, is necessarily um, only incapacitated by his death. I think we have other ways of it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, this isn't the Wild West where we have jailbreaks all the time anymore. Yeah. So we don't we don't read stories about those. And uh, I'm not sure if there's ever in history been a, an escape from prison from the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, where the worst of the worst go right now if they are not handed death sentences. So... Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that point. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But yeah, our prisons are very advanced from those days. <laughs> and I mean, it's not to say that being in prison keeps someone from having an evil influence, right? So if you think of, you know, drug kingpins or whatever, it's not as if they can't be ordering nefarious activity from the inside. But I think, you know, I think the real reason, and actually the, the article that you were talking about, Zach, that Justice Scalia wrote, I read that for school way back in college, and I remember um, one of his arguments basically is that there's a, there's a just purpose of, of retributive justice, sorry, where effectively the state is exacting a cost from the criminal for the the crime that he committed and um, is you know sort of gaining retribution for the victim and you know in a sense you can you can certainly see that and obviously death is in terms of earthly justice the highest price that we can pay um well i i mean i think that's true there are there are terrible things that can be done to punish someone that um, are prohibited both by i think morality and the United States Constitution, so we don't need to address them. But um, as far as I'm concerned, because I have, you know, as a Catholic, I have an eternal standpoint, you know, so I'm not concerned as much with the, um, with the exaction of perfect justice in this world, both because I think, as we previously discussed, it's not really attainable 
on the population scale. You know, you're going to make errors, and I think that risk is too high in the case of the death penalty. But even positing a case where we know this guy did it and he did something really awful, I don't think that this life is the only chance for him to be brought to justice. So as far as I'm concerned, it's okay if he languishes for the rest of his life in a maximum security prison, you know, with whatever hardships that may or may not entail. And I know there are debates, too, about whether it's bad enough to be stuck in prison for the rest of your life. But I believe that he'll receive justice, you know, if he's unrepentant at the end of time. So I don't have as many concerns about needing to exact it in this world. I realize that's not everyone's perspective, but that's what yeah, that I... Was actually, that was my next to. question is, you know, do you need that eternal perspective to embrace the ethic that you you are articulating right now? Oh, that's a good question. So I so if if you think that this life is is the end, right? Um, then can you let people get away with not receiving the death penalty? I think it's um, a lot. Well, I think it's a lot harder to do that. I think you. I mean, you're right in a sense, except that you get into this really weird math of of sort of the opposite of utility, right? So, like, what's the greatest bad that we can slap on someone who did something really terrible and I think I mean ceasing to exist is is pretty bad if you believe that's what uh that's what happens to you after you die but I'm not convinced that ceasing to exist is the greatest suffering you know especially since in the United States we don't any longer administer the death penalty generally speaking I think in ways that are um intentionally painful right so uh, is it more, is it, you know, do you get sort of more justice pain out of being executed if, you know, at that point you cease to exist than you do out of being in prison for, you know, 30, 40 yeah. years? I don't know. That's a that's a question I don't feel competent to answer. I think it's debatable. Yeah, I, I um, definitely agree that it's debatable. And obviously I'm not qualified to answer that either, but I, I read a pretty horrific article in the New York Times about a month ago talking about conditions in that supermax prison in Colorado that I mentioned in Florence. And mm -hmm. it, it profiled some of these prisoners who have been in there for a decade or more. And these men have, have basically gradually lost their minds as they've been in there. Wow. And I mean, to be fair, they probably weren't entirely sane to begin with to do the acts that got them into that prison in the first place. Um, but just the, the degree to which they've found themselves descend into chaos uh, and madness is really disturbing. There were stories of, um, of people eating their, their fingers off and just crazy things that sound absolutely oh, horrific. Wow. And perhaps like that would be a worse punishment than actually just ceasing to exist. Like yeah. you were saying, Muriel. Well, I would think too, that if I didn't, if I didn't have the eternal perspective that I also have, that I would think I would apply the death penalty even with greater caution because I mean, possibly I would, think this way that I would be concerned about exacting a punishment that's so final um if that is the only the final end of someone and the only punishment that they'll receive and that is our best attempt at a perfect justice and there is no other option then I would be concerned that of making the wrong decision or not giving them the opportunity to change their lives or something like that so I don't I don't think you necessarily need that eternal perspective to be wary of the death penalty 
Sally, I think that's a really good point. And something that occurred to me, Zach, while you were talking, sort of brings me back to the Sarnayev case, um, is the role that mental illness can often play in the commission of these terrible crimes, right? And I know that we had deposited for our hypothetical someone, you know, fully in possession of his faculties, but I think it's important to remember in the real-life cases that more often than not, there's, there's you know, got to be some element of that playing in, and I think that uh, that affects, um, you know, people's culpability for their crimes. But I also was interested when I was reading up about the Boston Marathon case and the Tsarnaev jury that um, the jury itself had to be, the term, had to, it was a new term to me, death qualified, I think, is the term? Yeah, so, so apparently... That. Um, apparently there is, in cases in which the death penalty is a possible verdict or a possible punishment that can be inflicted, I guess that there, there is in some of these cases a process whereby they, uh, when they're selecting the jury, they weed out anyone who has sort of personal convictions that would make them unwilling to impose it. Just like in uh, so that, Wadir? Yes, in Wadir. Right. So, so that raises... Some questions for me, I guess, in terms of the concept of, of due process and being uh, being judged by a jury of your peers, because if you know some members of the public and you know some proportion of the public, I think the majority of Americans do still support the death penalty, but I think it's getting closer. But um, you know, the majority is certainly not all, and so I guess it, it raises some questions for me if, in advance, we know that all the people. You know, hearing these arguments are willing, at least, to impose the death penalty, whether that's really, um, you know, whether you're going to get justice yeah. in the sense of the deserved punishment. It seems like a little bit... Yeah, because so you're saying that if someone were to say, I don't agree with the death penalty at all, I don't think it should ever be imposed, then they would not allow to be a juror in that case. Exactly, exactly. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, that does seem to be not quite representative then. Right. It's, it's been ruled constitutional, although not mandatory, but I don't know. I think that there are some questions about that um, in, the, you know, in, the, in this specific case and in cases like it where they have a death-qualified jury, whether that doesn't sort of beg the question in a certain sense of sentencing because you're, you're, you're stacking the deck, it seems like. Right. right. Excellent use of begs the question, by the way. Most people get <laughs> oh, that one wrong. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm evangelical about the correct use of begs the question. So that was very, I that was very good. Thank you. So, so one of the things, we can move on here in just a minute, but one of the things I want to talk about briefly that we haven't really touched on is, is the nature of the criminal justice system and what it tries to do. Because I think one of the things that bothers me most about the death penalty, and, and when people start talking about this as uh, a good example of um, retributive justice, is that we're looking at the death penalty as something that just meets out the punishment that is due for a crime. And if that's the case with the death penalty, and that's our approach for why we carry out the death penalty, then what does it say for why we assign prison terms in the first place? You know, are, pri are prison terms just punitive? Are we just using these uh, to carry out retributive justice? Or should we be doing something that's more constructive, you know, that's, that's um, taking these inmates, these convicted criminals through a process of rehabilitation. To bring them back into society. To bring them back into society, yeah. Um, and I think that's a really Or even important... if they can't come back into society, maybe they have a full life sentence that at least they could do some good within the prison system. Right, and we can, we can you know, help the human person who's incarcerated in that way. 
that I think that's a great question, and it actually it you touched on something that I had not talked about, but that is another sort of acknowledged purpose of criminal justice and and meeting out punishment, which is is restoration, right? So, um, and and restoration in two senses, right? Because obviously you can't restore the murdered people to life. This you know there's there's an irremediable evil that's been done, and we have to acknowledge that. And I think. You know, in examining the purposes of the criminal justice system, we have to take that into account. Um, but do we then just say, well, you've committed this atrocity, you know, and therefore the whole rest of your life, however long it may be, is dedicated to, you know, doing penance for this in such a way that we've effectively given up on you, you know, and you right, no longer right. matter as a member of our society. I think that's a really great question and something to consider when, you think about the fact that the whole debate between people who are against the death penalty and people who are for it is, well, we have the death penalty or we have left that parole under maximum security prison, you know, to some sort of insanity, it sounds like, or, you know, just really terrible conditions. Is there a third way that we haven't examined or haven't talked about? And that's a good question for us as a society to consider, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think we can leave it at that. This has been a really good discussion. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we've, we have some good things to talk about and we might be able to dig into this a little bit more on a future episode. Maybe you can do a comeback tour, Muriel. Um, <laughs> oh, sounds I, good. I know I'll there are more Gregory. questions on this and this is a long conversation and uh, I, I'd be more curious to just go beyond the death penalty and, and touch on some of the stuff we were just talking about uh, in terms of the broader questions for our uh, criminal justice system. So I would love that. All right. Awesome. Well, at this point, we'll transition to our next segment. All right, welcome to our lifestyle segment. Today, we are going to talk about date night ideas because Muriel and her husband are very busy. As we mentioned, he's a medical resident, and she is a doctoral student and a stay-at-home mom, so they are quite busy right now, and we're fairly busy and always looking for time to spend together. Um, so we just want to talk about ideas for date nights, both in and outside your house. And as evidence <laughs> of how busy Muriel is, obviously we've been listening to Gregory contribute to this whole conversation. So She's podcasting and being a mom at the same time. <laughs> so Muriel, let me just take this opportunity to thank you for joining us, uh, even in the midst of all your mothering there. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, so some ideas that we had um, that we have enjoyed recently, um, even today, actually, we, well, one thing that we like to do is just make a special dinner or a fun dinner at home. Let's say we can't get outside of the house and then play games together or watch a show together or watch a movie. Um, yeah, we do that a lot because, um, it's, well, number one, it's cheaper. So yeah. it helps us save some money, but two, it's, you know, hard to find a sitter. And actually, since we recently moved, we don't know anybody in the area right now who, um, who is, you know, can babysit for us. So, we just put our daughter down for the night and then we just get to town, you know, making a dinner together or something. And we really like cooking together. Um, we didn't cook very much individually before we got married, but it's been something that we've kind of learned how to do together. Um, although Sally's far outpaced me at this point. So she, uh, <laughs> I just do it more often. she's far and away the it. better cook, <laughs> but we like doing it together. So we enjoy doing that. Um, and it's a fun time to just talk to each other while we're in the kitchen prepping food and all of that. So I mean, and I don't know, there's, there's something fun too about the creative aspect to it. They were like creating something together yeah. and collaborating on something and then yeah. we get to enjoy it when we Reap eat it. Reap the so. benefits. <laughs> John and I love to cook together too. And it's been something that we've 
enjoyed um, a lot before we got married and before we had our baby and now that we are sort of in the same phase you guys are where we just have a little one and it's hard to get out of the house so we love that too it would be great if we could all get together and cook for that the four of us I know a double we'll day we'll geography that would be great <laughs> for sure now do you guys have a special dish so our current um our current trend when we cook special meals at home um, is to try to create the food in our home that we can't get at restaurants in our area. We live in a pretty small uh, city in Minnesota, and Minnesota has lots of charms, but uh, access to good Tex-Mex is not one of its uh, virtues. Tex-Mex. So, oh. yes. I love Tex-Mex. So my, my husband is a native Texan, and we met in Texas while I was down there for graduate school. So uh, we have sort of developed, we've perfected our homemade frozen margarita recipe so we make margaritas and we like to make fajitas or burritos or enchiladas and do you guys have like a a margarita maker or do you just blend ice we just use our blender um we have that seems like a a much wiser idea we were at bed bath and beyond the other day and we saw a like a margarita machine and it just looked like a massive waste of money because you could totally use a blender for that. You can, yeah. You need a good blender, but we we happen to have a, a pretty good blender, so we use that. And I also, not to brag, but I'm I am a master guacamole maker, Ooh. so that's another thing to do. I love guacamole. Guacamole. Nice. Yeah, we've been into making pizzas lately. We also love Mexican food, but we just started making pizzas, and I think just because. They're fairly easy, and you can kind of throw them together pretty quickly, and just there's so many varieties of it. And the thing we've really enjoyed doing lately is making our own pizza crust. So we don't we don't buy store bought pizza crust pre made and then just top it. That's easy. We uh, we actually make the dough from scratch and roll out the which is the also crust. pretty easy, but it just tastes so much what, better. What is Gregory doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's gurgling and trying to chew on my finger. He's got seven teeth. So he's pretty, wow. he can inflict some damage. So wow. I try to keep him from chewing on things he can draw blood from. Sorry about the noise. Um, well, I have to say that I, you're going to have to tell me your secrets because I'm not a super cook, but there are a few things I've tried that I've categorically failed at. And homemade pizza crust is one of them. Uh, I've, I have, on not more, or on not less than one occasion, I've cried uh, after attempting to make oh, homemade no. pizza and just failing miserably yeah uh, so pizzas are actually one of our downfalls um we just end up getting papa john's which i'm sure is not as good as sally pizza so all the credit really goes to one of our new cookbooks that we got and this is where we got the recipe it's the date night in cookbook by um ashley rodriguez and she has this great easy recipe for olive oil pizza dough you just make it the day before and then um, bring it out the next day from the fridge and roll it out. And it's just, it's so, so good. And it's, it's really not that hard and I'm not a master baker. So <laughs> that's saying I'm going to have, I'm going to have to look this up for sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, we've also, um, sort of adapted even before we had Gregory, uh, my husband is a resident. So his work schedule is, um, I think the euphemism I would use is unpredictable. Um, now, when you say pretty, he's a, when you say he's a resident, uh, we've right. been watching The Americans lately, and in The okay. Americans, the resident is the chief spy, the chief KGB spy ah. in Washington. So I just want to I just want to make sure we're not talking about that kind of resident. Well, if if we were, would I be able to tell you? That's true. I mean, Good point. Think about that, right? So I mean, on his resume. 
He's a medical resident, which oh, means he's right. a physician okay. completing the training required for his board certification. So um, that means he and his colleagues work really hard, a lot of hours. It's a, it's a, you know, it's it's better than it used to be. He can work a maximum now of eighty hours a week. So, That's and many of those, <laughs> yeah. So it's a nice little cap, two full time jobs. Wow. Um, this month, he is on a rotation where every fourth day, he works a 28-hour shift. Oh my and then so that's actually really day. every fourth and fifth day because 28 hours bleeds into the fifth day. Right. Well, it's, the th- it's you know, really every third and fourth day. That's crazy. And then wow. he goes, yeah. <laughs> it's a, so what I'm saying is that we don't have a ton of so – the, the concept of weekends is basically irrelevant to us. Friday nights are you know, just another night he has to get up at 4.30 sure. the next morning. And um, so we've learned to, through the course of our marriage, kind of uh, the, the concept of a date night has sort of morphed into when can we spend time together. And we've gotten pretty creative through the couple years that we've been here of figuring out uh, ways to grab time together that aren't very conventional. So one of the things that we do, we actually did today, um, is meet up at the hospital. And hospital cafeteria food is not delicious, but, uh, you know, the time together, if we can snatch 45 minutes or five minutes just to sit down and see each other's faces and John can see the baby so that, you know, they know each other as the baby grows up. Um, It's better than nothing for sure. But another thing that we've started doing recently that I recommend all married couples with young kids look into is that we found a gym in our area that has an in-house childcare where you can leave your baby for up to two and a half hours a day. Um, so obviously we use this time to work out, but uh, recently, earlier this week, we actually went, we dropped off the baby and we played a game of racquetball. So that was kind of fun. Oh, I love racquetball. That's great. Multitasking is another thing we've gotten really good at. So anytime we can combine yeah. time spent together with errands or exercise. Out, or, yeah. We have actually in our history also instituted a tradition called cocktail cleaning where when we really need to, you know, scrub down the bathrooms and mop the floors, we mix up a couple gin and tonics. So at least it's, you know, sort fun. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so at the gym, you know, we went and we played a game of racquetball and we swam in the pool a little bit and then we went and grabbed lunch. They have a cafe right there and then went and picked up the baby. So it was a nice little time for just the two of us in the middle of the day and he was safe and taken care of and uh, it's very affordable at least at the facility that we found so much cheaper than hiring a sitter and um, you know you know everyone's background checked and safe to deal with children so it's definitely something to look into for couples who don't have a lot of time and don't have good child care options because he has a great time there there are lots of different toys and then we get to spend a little time together that's awesome yeah we were kind of talking about a similar thing today, just like how it's important to be able to just kind of be spontaneous and grab, as you said, grab that time when you have it, even if it's not the most, you know, the best time, or it seems like it's not the best time. Um, and we were just out today doing some things and, and we realized, oh, we could go out to lunch with, with our daughter, but we could go out to lunch and we have that time. So let's, you know, let's just do that spontaneously. And that's been hard for me, I think, to be able to just kind of be able to be spontaneous, um, and, and just kind of change the, the schedule at a moment's notice, but it's been an important way to, to find that, that time together, um, with yeah, or without And something daughter. that I was unaware of before I became a dad was how much we'd have to schedule our, our, even our daytime 
like time together around our daughter's naps. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's been, it's been quite an experience, but we're getting better at it. And so today, for example, like Sally was saying, we went to lunch and it was like, you know, we're out right now. Let's see, when, when do we have to put her down for a nap? Like how much, how much time can we squeeze in yeah, here? Yeah. Oh yeah, we can, we can do lunch. So we yeah. did lunch. Uh, oh, yeah. that's great. No, I think it's a really good thing. I, I think it's very valuable uh, to a certain degree, the way that people try to emphasize that once you have a baby, it's still important to um, prioritize your relationship, right? And so you hear these people who say, oh, it's non-negotiable. You have to have a date night every week or every two weeks and put it in your budget. And I think, you know, I think that's a really good mindset because the mindset is your relationship is important your marriage is important and it's good for your children to have that relationship it's just not realistic for everyone to to schedule a date right. night right. you know but i think if you take if you take the gist of it which is prioritize connection right yeah. so you it's important for for you and your spouse to find the time to stay connected and then just be creative about the ways yeah, what that, does that you look like for you yeah Work it in, right? And you know, taking the baby for a walk in the stroller is sometimes right. the way that we yeah, squeeze we, in we're a talking conversation. about that today. Actually, is that that's one of the things we do most often? I think is just, just like go grab on a, a walk together and then go on a walk. <laughs> and summertime is great for that. We're excited to be out of the Minnesota winter. Finally, we can go outside again. So yeah, yeah it's great. Those coffees for frozen yogurt. <laughs> exactly. Oh yes. Yeah, there were times over the winter when we tried to go on a walk oh, and we gosh. would get, you know, two houses past our own. And we just said, this is a terrible <laughs> like, idea. I don't think this, this is, is so good cold. parenting to take our daughter out in this weather. <laughs> well, so we whenever I have a moment like that, I think about Laura Ingalls Wilder, right? So <laughs> she took her, her baby daughter on a 20-mile horse ride or something like that in what I'm sure were sub-zero temperatures. But I think you're right. Be safe. Be yeah. safe. <laughs> Well, I probably have nothing to complain stuff. about. We're far south of, of yeah, you guys we're not in, in Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I think we should probably wrap this up, unfortunately. But hopefully, um, I know I've gotten some ideas for us. And hopefully our listeners have gotten some good ideas for their busy lifestyles. Um, and yeah, and we're going to transition to our interview with Muriel. And we'll make sure to, uh, to post a link on our website to that uh, cookbook that we mentioned. that has the uh, awesome pizza crust recipe that's been very effective for us. So. Yes. <laughs> all right and we're back and we're talking to muriel who is a doctoral student and also a full-time mom and uh the wife of a medical school resident so she's quite a busy person and juggling a lot right now (laughs) and we wanted to talk to her a little bit more about her life and how she does all that so, Muriel, first of all, what are you studying in school? I'm in a graduate program in political science, and my subfield is American politics. So I have a special interest in constitutional law, and that falls under the umbrella of American politics. Um, so I study constitutional law, and then my um, other subfield interests are in political theory and international relations. So why did you uh, choose to do the Ph.D. and not the J.D.? Why, why do you want to go to law school? That's a great question. Um, well, several reasons. Uh, one of them is that there are more, I mean, there aren't a ton of professors of constitutional law in this country, but there are more people teaching constitutional law than there are people practicing constitutional law, the kind that I find really interesting. So going to law school um, is a great way to learn about a lot of facets of the law, but uh, the odds of me ending up practicing law in the area of constitutional law were fairly slim. So that's one reason. Another reason is that 
um, I actually ended up in a funded program. So the, the program that I am in uh, offers funding stipends and tuition remission for all of its students, which seemed like a, a yeah. yeah, it makes a big, makes a big difference. And it's providential because the graduate school that I ended up at is, uh, brought me to the part of the country where I met my husband. So I'm very grateful that I made that decision for many reasons. So what do you want to do with a PhD in politics or constitutional law? Well, I want to teach at the college level. And one of the things I love about my program that's unusual um, for students of American politics as I am is that my program is very theory friendly. So another reason that I chose graduate school over law school is that it enables me to study more things that I find interesting. So outside my particular subfield, you know, I have interest in political theory and international relations and um, I've had the ability to study all of those topics with professors who are experts in them. And so that gives me a lot of versatility in terms of what I will hopefully be able to teach. Um, so not necessarily focusing exclusively on constitutional law or on American politics narrowly, but also on other topics of politics more broadly um, to teach college students. I had some really wonderful professors when I was an undergraduate who really not only taught me a lot about their subject matter, but also just helped me to grow as a person, um, you know, and helped me develop my mind and my whole person and really encouraged me and directed me on the path that I'm on. So hopefully I'll be able to have that same effect on my students someday. Yeah, that's fantastic. So with all that schooling that you have to go through to get to that point and being a mom of adorable Gregory and being married to a very busy husband, how do you juggle all of that? How does that work? Oh, well, I mean, it's it's precarious, but we're actually very blessed. I am really grateful. We unfortunately don't live close to either of our families, so that has made the transition from, um, you know, too busy, but sort of manageable married people to to married people with a baby somewhat difficult but we're really blessed and fortunate in that we have really good child care options here so I have Gregory with a babysitter somewhere in the range of 12 to 15 hours a week and it varies depending on her availability but we have a wonderful friend who has a little boy just about half a year older than Gregory who um watches him for some of the week and then sometimes I actually use our gym daycare to go ahead and get some work done and yeah I can do some I can do some of my reading while I have him with me and occasionally John is around to take him for a few hours and I can get some work done then so I just kind of fit it in into the yeah. into the spaces between the other things that I need to get done yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were saying in the lifestyle segment about being flexible and spontaneous you have to do that with your schoolwork too <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, it's been really freeing because as a single graduate student, you know, there's sort of this expectation that your school and it is, you know, it is your job and it's sort of the thing that is most primary, I think, in your life. And so there's this expectation that it takes up kind of all of your life and all of your time. And I let it expand to fill that space. And I've been amazed at how much more efficient I've gotten now that I have less time. I'm sure. Um, being able to do my work more more quickly and effectively and just fit it into so now it's this it's this part of my life that I'm privileged to um, to be able to do rather than my whole life and I've actually found it a lot less stressful to approach it that way That's great. despite the fact that I'm a lot busier now yeah so as a uh, budding scholar of international relations I'm sure you're familiar with Anne-Marie Slaughter um, 
who's an international relations scholar, wrote a book called The New World Order, the wife of Andrew Moravchik, who's another international relations scholar. So um, they've done a lot of work together collaboratively. Um, But she wrote a piece that had nothing to do with international relations in the Atlantic a few years ago called Why Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And you can... You can stop me if this is too personal a question, but I'm wondering, given your experience trying to juggle all these different competing demands, what your thoughts are that what your thoughts are on that? Do you think women can have it all? I think that's a great question. I remember reading that piece and finding it refreshingly honest. And you know, it's definitely a debate that women have to face in a particular way, right? Because no one asks a man when his wife is having a baby, are you coming back to work after the baby's born, right? I mean... Yeah, I definitely didn't get that every, question. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Everyone assumes, right, that it's, it's possible to be a father and to have work that you do that's outside of your family life, and no one questions whether you're a good father if you, you know, miss a play at school because you were at work, right? And and this whole thing is just, it's so much harder on women than it is on men. And I think societally we have um, a long way to go in terms of making those changes. I mean, I was blessed to grow up in a family where my mom was at home with us full time. I have five siblings and that was a real blessing to my family. And I think that there's so much value in the work that women do as moms. I think that it's not helpful to women to sort of have have this debate like, well, what are you giving up when you work or what are you giving up when you stay home? Because the fact of the matter is that people are complicated, right? We're not simple. We all have different gifts and different circumstances and they can lead us in different ways and it doesn't stay the same over time. So I think the question of whether or not women can have it all um, is actually just sort of, it's not the right question to ask because it... The implication underneath it is that you're failing at something if you, well, you you lose either way, right? Because if you're not devoting your energy to one thing or the other exclusively, then the implication is that you're not doing a good enough job at it. And if you are dividing your time, then the implication is that you're failing at all of your endeavors. Um, So I think a better question is, you know, how can we, as women, have the lives that are right for each of us individually? In the same way that, you know, that men do, where we ask questions like, you know, do we want to have a family and what are our professional interests and how we fit those together is going to vary. But, um, I mean, I feel very much like I have everything that I've ever wanted, so I feel blessed in that respect, but um, it's not it's not simple or clear-cut, and I'm sure there are people who think that it's terrible of me to leave my baby with someone else you know, during the day while I get some work done. And then I'm sure there are people who think I'm an insufficiently dedicated student for spending time with my baby. And, you know, they don't matter to me at all. And I'm really grateful to be where I am. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. Like having it all could mean different things to different people. Um, and we can't, it's hard to, to ask that question without explaining what, it, what do you mean by to have it all. <laughs> One thing that I want to emphasize at this point really quickly is that I am exceedingly privileged in the respect that I have the support of my, um, effectively my bosses, you know, my professional mentors, the professors who are guiding me through my program, and that's a privilege that a lot of women, especially in the academy and then in the working world more broadly, really don't have. Um, So I have not been forced to make the choices that a lot of women are forced to make between having a family and continuing in my chosen career path because I have the support of these 
extraordinary people who recognize that I can do my job well and be a mother at the same time. But, um, you know, societally, I don't think that's always the case. And I think that's a big problem. Yeah. You know, I was on a, um, this is related, but I was on an email discussion the other day with some people who were talking about maternity leave policies in the United States. And, um, this one of the people on the on the discussion was um, uh, had shared this YouTube video that compared uh, the United States and I think it was Papua New Guinea as having like the worst the worst uh, policies for maternity leave in the world. You know, like we're at the bottom of the bottom. Uh, you know, compared to all other developed nations, we have far lower um, uh, rates of maternity. Uh, no, I think it was paid, paid the, leave. Yeah, basically, we are alone with you know, a handful of countries in that we don't have mandated maternity leave policies for the private sector across the board, across the board. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, one, I think it reveals, um, potentially a problem, but two, I think it's telling the wrong story because it's talking about, you know, government regulation of maternity leave when really what we should be talking about is how, how well the private sector supports. So what I'd like to see is some data and I'm sure it's out there. I haven't dug deep enough probably, but I want to see some data on how well, the private sector supports things like maternity leave. So, for example, how many American Fortune 500 companies give uh, moms, working moms, maternity leave, paid maternity leave when their child is born so that they can can leave the workforce temporarily, uh, still be provided for and have their income and then return when they're ready after they've, you know, they've gotten their feet planted on the floor again. Right. No, that's a great point, Zach. And I think I would agree with you that I think the solution is not so much in government regulation. Um, you know, you, you, there are some constitutional questions that would arise there with any kind of mandate. But also, um, I think that a baseline problem to get where you're talking about with, you know, private, the private sector moving in that direction is starting to view women who are mothers as having particular value to offer to the workforce into, you know, their professions, whether they're in the private sector or the public sector, and thinking of it that way, something um, that, you know, women who are mothers are not liabilities, they're assets, that, you know, the juggling that I do in my daily life has actually developed skills that are really valuable in my professional life, and not everyone has them, and I have them because I'm a mother, not in spite of them. Yeah, as you pointed out, it's made you a more efficient worker, just to name one of those benefits. And so it's actually made you probably better at, at what you do. Exactly. So I guess one other uh, one of the side of this is that Anne Marie Slaughter article that we talked about, um, why women still can't have it all. She opened the article talking about her time as director of policy for the State Department, um, which is uh, something that um, that, you know, George Kennan once held too. So this is a very prestigious position in the American foreign policy establishment. This was held by Anne Marie Slaughter. I think she might've been the first woman to hold that position. I'm not positive about that, but her, you know, her article was really about women in top positions, um, be that in business or public life. And it was making the argument that women can't have it all there. And she, I think very articulately laid out a, a vision of what can change to make that happen. But I think one thing that gets lost in this is that, um, it is that many times even men in those positions still aren't having at all because men who are in top positions are required to, de- to dedicate so much time to the job that they will invariably find themselves pulled away from family probably more than, than would be ideal. Absolutely. Well, it's funny as the wife of a medical resident, this is a, a subject that in, in my particular family is sort of 
illustrated uh, very aptly, but ma. is the case in so many other families as well, right? I mean, no one would argue that John, you know, who is a wonderful father and very present to Gregory whenever he is around, uh, is is having it all in the sense that he has as much time with his son as he would like, right? And that's just part of the that's just part of the job. And we kind of understood going into residency and having starting our family that sorry, Gregory's eager to contribute to the company. Yeah, I think he's um, just he's just talking about his dad. He loves his he dad. He loves his dad. <laughs> um, you know, that that it's it's not ideal. You know, for us it's in some sense temporary because this is not residency is not the end of the road. Although you can certainly choose specialties in medicine where your schedule is just as demanding as it was in residency, if not more. Um, and so to to some degree I think it just comes down to what's right for each family, you know, and there are just gonna be some cases where people's professional professional responsibilities are going to, for some time or for a long time, pull them away from their families more than they would like. And that's a question, I think, for the family to decide. Um, but it's certainly not unique to women. And, and again, I think that's something in our cultural narrative that's just totally lost. Yeah, nobody I, you know, nobody questions whether... Get at, yeah. Exactly. Nobody questions whether those men who aren't there for their children's piano recitals, etc., are, are good fathers. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, well, I, we're running towards the end of our time here. Um, one final question for you, and this is not related to what we were just discussing. This is more of a fun one, but um, if you have a dinner party, and we know the answer to this because we saw your questionnaire, but I want you to share for our listeners, if you were hosting a dinner party with three people from history, who would you invite to the table? Oh, goodness. Well, I've had to change my mind because when I listened to the interview with Danny, um, he stole one of my. Oh, that's true. He did. Yeah. All right. So, who's your replacement? Who, who are your final three? I can't three? be unor- I can't be unoriginal. Um, <laughs> sure. So, so if I can't use Pope Saint John Paul II, Danny stole him in his episode. Uh, I would say Pope Francis because I have some questions that I would love to ask him. Um, I would love to have Abigail Adams over for dinner. She seems just like the kind of woman I would like to get to know, uh, and definitely very politically savvy and involved and ahead of her time in that respect. And then finally, I would love to have Justice Alito partly um, for dissertation research. But, you know, I'd feed him. So you think in exchange he would answer some of my class? I mean, I hope. Yeah, Maybe yeah probably. I could give him some cake and then get some get some work done out of him. Just Definitely. Well, it right seems like it seems like those justices love to talk anyway. Oh, <laughs> some, you know, some of them love to talk. Justice Thomas does not like to talk, at least really? on oh. the bench. But no, well, he's famous for never asking questions in oral oh. argument. He, he thinks that it's pointless, <laughs> and, and uh, he he just sits there. Sometimes he looks like he's sleeping, but I'm sure he wouldn't actually sleep. Um, I, I bet if I was in the Supreme Justice- Court, we'd be friends. <laughs> you and Justice Thomas. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we'd hit it off. Doesn't sound like the best dinner party guest, though. <laughs> well, you know, maybe, maybe not. But but Justice Alito, I would I would love to get some access to him because I have theories about his jurisprudence. I'd love to know if they're true or not. Ooh, that would be good. exciting. That sounds like a good dinner party. Coming well, soon in a dissertation near you. Nice. Hold your breath. We'll be on. The I, it'll be I long. Will, I will be holding my breath for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, invite us over, and I'll bring the pizza dough. <laughs> so oh, sounds good. You can save me. <laughs> well, thanks so much for talking with us yeah, today, thank Muriel. Yeah, This has been great. And it was thanks, a lot of fun. Gregory. And uh, I learned a lot. So, thanks so much for working within my constraints of 
uh, you know, having a baby and working around it. And we're going to try to get him to bed here soon, I think. All right, sounds, sounds good. good. Well, we definitely admire you for all that you're doing and uh, all the valuable work that you've um, put in while you've been in school, especially. And uh, with the addition oh, of Gregory, so it's got to be a big challenge, but keep at it. Yeah, you're doing a great job. It's a joy. Thanks so much, y'all. It was great to talk to you. Before we end our show for today, we need to check our inbox to see if we have any mail ah, from our fans. Good reminder, Sally. Let's check the inbox. Do we have anything? All right. Let me check. We do. We have an email from Nathan, and he says that we have a sweet podcast, and he loves what we are doing, and that he and his wife, Sadie, are going to download some of our episodes to listen to on their upcoming move. Thanks, Great. Nathan. Thank you very much, Nathan and Sadie. And actually, for our listeners out there, Nathan and Sadie actually filled out one of our questionnaires to be on the podcast, and we are looking forward to interviewing them in just a few weeks. Which is a great reminder to go to our website, vernacularpodcast.com slash questionnaire and fill out a questionnaire if you want to be on the show. We'll look at all your answers and then we'll contact you to see if we can set up a time to do an interview. And you can also follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod. Or find us on Facebook. Just search Vernacular Podcast and we'll be there. Don't forget to check out our website if you haven't already, vernacularpodcast.com. And as always, feel free to reach out to us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com for feedback and questions and you very well may make it on the inbox section of our podcast well i think that about wraps it up for us here thank you so much for listening for vernacular podcast i'm zach and i'm sally have a great week Bye.